Today's text comes to us from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, and this sermon is entitled, The House Built on Rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You may be seated. There is a saying, although I don't know where it's from, it goes like this. Encompassed by a thong, on numbers they depend, they say so many can't be wrong, and miss a happy end. You could have easily stayed at home this morning, kind of chilly in New York. A few hours of sleep on a Sunday morning is not a bad thing when one considers the returning hardships of work on Monday morning. Yet you're here. Now I'd like to believe you're here because you're all on the narrow road to eternal life, to heaven. The road less traveled. These past several weeks we've studied Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what is famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And within this powerful sermon, Jesus has given us explanations regarding God's laws. And He has changed even some of God's Old Testament allowances. Most prominently, Jesus prohibits oath-taking and remarriages, two practices which were permitted in the days of Moses. Uh, One scholar put it this way, The scribes were the learned people and teachers of the Jewish nation, and were principally Pharisees. They taught chiefly the sentiments of their rabbis and the traditions which had been delivered. They consumed much of their time in useless disputes and vain jangling. Jesus was open, plain, grave, useful, delivering truth as became the oracles of God, not spending His time in trifling disputes and debating questions of no importance, but confirming his doctrine by miracles and argument, teaching as having power, as it is in the original, and not in the vain and foolish manner of the Jewish doctors. He showed that he had authority to explain, to enforce, and to change the ceremonial laws of the Jews. He came with authority such as no man could have, And it is not remarkable that his explanations astonished him. Since Jesus was God, he had the ability to speak authoritatively on all matters of divine law. In the United States, we have three different branches of government. For many years, people ruled, uh, lived under monarchy, and this American experiment known as democracy set up three different branches, and within these branches, Congress makes the laws, and the judicial system applies the laws. They often interpret it. 
Jesus, however, was all in one. Prophet, priest, king. Jesus spoke with such forceful authority that in verse 28 of today's passage, the crowd is left astonished. In other words, whatever you may have believed about marriage or adultery or taking of oaths, whatever you may have believed regarding any of the topics discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, once Jesus gives His explanation, His interpretation of the law, it's final. That's what it is. Revisionists cannot do anything with that because He speaks with authority. Verse 29 makes a differentiation between the way Jesus taught and the way the Jewish, Jewish teachers taught. The crowds were used to their scribes and teachers who never taught authoritatively like Christ. Just exactly how did they teach? Listen to Ellicott's commentary. As a rule, the scribe hardly ever gave his exposition without at least beginning by what had been said by Hillel or by Shammai or by Rabbi Joseph or Rabbi Mir, depending almost or altogether upon what has thus been ruled before, as much as an English lawyer depends on his precedence. In contrast with all of this, our Lord fills people with amazement by speaking to them as one who has a direct message from God. It is the prophet, or rather, perhaps, the king who speaks and not the scribe. End quote. We have, in chapters 5 through 7 of our English Bibles, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have preserved for us a message from the King of Kings himself. That's what we have. So as we close out the seventh chapter of Matthew today, it is imperative to keep in mind that our Lord is, is seeking to accomplish something with this text. What exactly is Jesus trying to accomplish? That's the question we must ask. With each of the three passages of Scripture leading up to this week, our Lord has been stressing the importance of one key thing. What was it? Genuine belief. According to Jesus, false professions of faith, lip service to Christ, and even mighty works done in the name of Christ are not valid proofs of genuine salvation. In today's scripture passage, Jesus will once again instruct us on what true faith looks like. In this morning's passage, true faith according to Christ is demonstrated through active obedience to the commands of Christ. Or to use his own words, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The timeless theological principle for this morning, therefore, is this. Leave behind a lifetime of faithful obedience and withstand the storm of God's judgment. If you leave behind a lifetime of faithful obedience, you will be able to withstand the coming storm of God's judgment. And it's coming. 
We're already close to April. I, I just can't believe how fast, immensely quickly, how fast time flies. God's judgment is coming. You see, anyone could hear the words of Christ. You all can sit here and comfortably in your seats listen to the words of Christ. Anyone can. This is one of the reasons why we don't prohibit people from coming into church to worship with us. The only one prohibited from worshiping with a congregation, the Bible says, are to be those who have been excommunicated. Unbelievers are welcome to join us so that they can be at awe and worship God. Hopefully, by the end of the worship service themselves. But anyone could sit here and listen to the words of Christ. Anyone could memorize and recite a few words of Christ. There are unbelieving professors of the Bible who can recite the Bible quite well. Very few, however, very few will actually obey the words of Christ. Many can hear it, many can recite it, many can memorize it, but very few will actually obey the words of Christ. Why? Because very few are actually saved. The old Presbyterian minister Albert Barnes put it this way, There is danger of losing the soul. The way to ruin is broad. The path to heaven is narrow. People naturally and readily go in the former. They never go in the latter without design. When we enter on the journey of life, we naturally fall into the broad and thronged way to ruin. Our, our, our original propensity, our native depravity, our disinclination to God and religion lead us to that. And we never leave it without effort. Do you hear me, church? How much more natural to tread in a way in which multitudes go than in one where there are few travelers and which requires an effort to find it? And how much more danger is there that we shall continue to walk in that way until it terminates in our ruin? No one is saved without effort. Wow. No one enters the narrow way without design. No one, by following his natural inclination and propensities. And yet, how indisposed we are to effort. How unwilling to listen to the exhortations which would call us from the broad path to a narrower and less frequented course. How prone are people to feel that they are safe if they are with the many and the multitude that attend them constitute a safeguard from danger. Isn't that the truth? You're on a narrow road. A less travel road. But instead of that causing you to doubt whether or not you are on the right road, let it serve as an affirmation for you that you are indeed on the road to eternal life. Amen? It is a difficult road. In fact, one of the reasons why you know you're on the right road is because of the difficulties experienced on this path. If the road was too easy, you would have to stop and ask yourself, am I on the right road? 
I want to give you three points for today. Number one, building a foundation of rock is costlier. It's costlier. Second, there is a difference between men. Foolish versus wise. Two different types of men in this world. Number three, the ultimate storm is really God's judgment. And I know when you're reading this passage, you could ask yourself, well, well, what is Jesus talking about? And a lot of pastors have said, well, it's the storm of cancer. It's the storm of financial difficulty. And I would like to say, my thesis this morning is that it's the, the ultimately, it's the storm of God's impending judgment. Barnes was right when he said that our original propensity, our native depravity, our disinclination to God and religion lead us to that, and we never leave it without effort. How much more natural to tread in a way in which multitudes go than in one where there are few travelers and which requires an effort to find it. Greatest, one of the greatest lessons that you could teach young people is to teach them to set lofty goals and to work hard for it. You know, a good portion of my life, I, I, I've had the desire always to pick the easier road. Okay? The road that the major that was easier to finish. And, I, and, and the studies that are easier to accomplish. And I will tell you this, that only later in my life when my faith became more serious did I realize that the harder road is the road to be embraced because that often gives you the greatest rewards. It gives you the greatest rewards. Few are on the narrow road to eternal life because it takes effort not only to find the road to life, but to remain on the road. It's very easy after running a marathon to the week after and the months after and then the year after to quit. It's not only hard to get on that road, but it's also hard to remain on the road. Our natural state is a state of sin and hence our natural choice will always be the comfortable pathway to sin. We see a lot of this also in the physical realm, not just the spiritual realm. So many professional athletes, after they retire, just look at them five to ten years later, they don't look like what they used to when they used to play. They let it, they let it hang. It's very hard to stay on that road. And God has made this physical reality to mirror spiritual realities. It's easy, it's hard enough to get on the road to eternal life, what I'm trying to say this morning is that it's also difficult, perhaps even harder, to stay on it. Now, I'm a Calvinist. I know if you're truly saved, you're going to make it. But it is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And your natural state is going to want to quit. There are easier religions to follow. And if you're a millennial this morning, it, there you can be among the 34% who are unaffiliated with the religion. greatest... Um, generation of our time uh, that are unaffiliated. Never before in history have we seen so many people leave the church in droves. The millennial generation is an irreligious generation by and large. They prefer spirituality but without an uh, official revealed revelation. The religion of Oprah and Dr. Phil, if you will. 
It is easier to choose sin and remain in it than it is to repent and live a life of obedience to God. Furthermore, the hearts of sinners are hardened by the fact that there are so few choosing the pathway to obedience. In other words, they rest in the fact that, well, you know, I may not be on the right road, but, but there are a lot of other people with me. And so if God is a God of love, even if I'm not on the right road, surely we all cannot be condemned to hell. Rather than inciting them to strive for excellence, the fact that so many choose the pathway to hell convinces them that the broad road must be the right path simply because so many people couldn't all be wrong at the same time. How many of you have been in situations like that before? In fact, the financial crisis of 2008 highlights this reality in the financial realm, doesn't it? I mean, so many people taking out mortgages on credit couldn't all be wrong at the same time. Yeah, and then the market crashes and it shows us we were all wrong. There's a big reason why so few obey. It is because so few believe. I'm going to say that one more time. There's a reason why so few obey. It is because so few believe. God has made it so that the prerequisite to obedience is what? Faith. Obedience to Christ does not save us, but obedience to Christ does convincingly demonstrate saving faith. A number of years ago, I'll give you an example this morning. A number of years ago, I had a couple visit our church. And after the worship service, I had an opportunity to sit down with them and meet with them in a a private setting, uh, as I did with many newcomers. And uh, the woman informed me that she had been a Christian for close to a decade at that point. And this was, I think, in 2016, and, and uh, uh, she had been saved, I think, in 20, 2006. And the man that she was with plainly, plainly admitted that he was a Buddhist. He was a practicing Buddhist. The two later revealed that they were engaged and about to be married within a year. So here you have a woman who called herself a Christian, saved for about a decade. She says she loves the Lord. Looking for a church, and that's why she was there this morning. I mean, that morning. And, and the person that she was engaged to be married with, who also came to church that morning, was a practicing Buddhist. And here I am as a pastor. I want people in my church. I'm welcoming newcomers and uh, very cordial people. And conversation was very amicable up until that point. And what am I to do? I'll tell you what I did. I said, could you both wait over here for a moment? I went outside, prayed, and I took a Bible from a bookshelf. And I came back into the room and took the time to show... Both of them, but mostly the woman. But I also showed the man because I wanted the man to know, listen, it's not, I don't have anything against you. Alright? I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor. I want you to know that everything I'm telling you right now is from this book. So I showed him, but mostly I targeted the woman because she called herself a Christian. I said, woman, listen to me. You're a believer. Here are the passages in the Bible where God clearly prohibits a believer from marrying an unbeliever. You cannot and you should not do this. It was a difficult conversation, but I did it. It would be spiritual malpractice not to. And what did she say? 
What does she say? Oh, pastor, you're right. I repent. See you later, guy. You wish. No. She didn't even blink. And she, she looked at me in the eye and she said, Pastor, so what? Every Christian sins in some arena of their lives. I choose this arena. And I never saw them again. That's what she told me. That's what she, she looked at me. This, that's what she said. Everybody sins. It's just a matter of choice as to what sin we sin. I choose this sin. I'll marry him, him and I'll repent afterwards. Was she saved? Last I heard, they went ahead and got married. <laughs> And I think, I think they even have a kid now. The man is still an unbeliever. I played basketball with him not too long ago. man is still an unbeliever. Blessed is the wise man who hears the words of Christ and obeys. Blessed is he who hears my words and does them. Foundation of rock. You see, when, when a homosexual forsakes his homosexual marriage, he demonstrates saving faith. When a remarried man forsakes his adultery, provides for those kids from that adulterous affair, but leaves them, or even takes them under his care, but leaves the woman, he demonstrates saving faith. When a man forsakes a good-paying job, in order to obey a command for Christ, he demonstrates saving faith. I am aware of the fact that if one day I have to hand in my rank because the powers that be push me to the point where I have to compromise Christ, I will hand in my rank rather than compromise Christ. God will provide for His children. And if he so decrees, heads will roll, as it did for John the Baptist. But we must not be Esau's in this world, selling out our faith for a pot of stew. Which is what anything in this world is, even the most tender, intimate relationships. Because in a blink of an eye, this life will be over. And in eternity, you will look back on that remarriage and say, Oh, I was a fool. That was just temporary stew. Do not despise your birthright. When you tithe 10% or more of your salary each week, you show saving faith. Right? Offering. How so? Because unregenerate men seldom part with their cash. All of you have a difficult time parting with your cash. And when you and I obey God through tithing, we are manifesting our faith that God and not cash is our master. So I look forward to offering time because it gives me an opportunity to assure me of my salvation. How? Through obedience in tithing. And I will say this, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. 
Look forward to difficult decisions because when, when you get a difficult decision in life and you're able to obey Christ, especially when it's hard, I guarantee you when you come out of that in obedience, you know what happens to your assurance of salvation? It surges. Because you look back and you go, God, thank you, because I know I couldn't have made that decision unless I was saved. There's no way I would have given that man up or that woman up or that job up or my money up if I didn't really believe in you. You see what I'm saying? Is King David saying, will I give to the Lord that which didn't cost me anything? You know that was a man after his own heart because that man, if you read how much he saved for the work of the temple, he gave so much out of his own treasury. He gave what cost. And difficult decisions, when we give up things for the Lord, demonstrate to us who exactly our Lord is. Today's passage, the house represents a person's life. I'm breaking it down for you right now. The house represents a person's life. The rock represents Christ. The only sure foundation for any Christian. The sand represents anything else in this world which people substitute in place for Christ. This could be a marriage, a job, children, even a hobby. I see people obsessed about basketball to the degree that you, you, you think that that's their God. There is no question. By the way, you ever seen those teams? Ball above all? I'm, I'm not, ball above all. That's idolatry on, on t shirts. There is no question that building upon rock is a costlier investment. It is harder and costlier to hew a foundation into rock. The effort is immense. Sand, because it is weaker, is more pliable and easier to work with, at least on the front end. It takes less effort and isn't as costly. But you will get what you pay for. You ever heard that? You get what you pay for? You're going to get what you pay for. Now, on the surface, on sunny days, when both homes are completed, both homes look fine. No one is able to see the foundation, so it all seems equally great to the naked eye. Like the wolf in sheep's clothing from last week's sermon, most nominal Christians are hard to detect with the natural eye. And for a while, their life seems good. They're prosperous, just like anyone else. They're healthy. It is only when storms come that foundations are tested and true Christians are subsequently revealed. Or, Paul put it this way, to a fractured Corinthian church full of sin, and divine discipline. Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I feel like that's what happened with mustard seed the past year. Storms, difficulties, heresies, and adversities all serve to prove the authenticity of a Christian's faith. The ones who are genuinely saved will what? Persevere till the end. And how do you know they're genuinely saved? Because they persevered till the end. 
they went out from us because they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. The fact that they left us shows us that they were never with us from the beginning. That's John right there, right? The Apostle John. I want you to keep this in mind. Jesus said that when rains, floods, winds come, the house built on himself, the rock, will remain standing firm. Storms, we ought to be thankful for storms, although no one goes around looking for them. We ought to be thankful because it strengthens our faith and storms prove the genuineness of our faith. Amen? That's why I'm pleased and blessed to be with, here with you all in church this morning. I'm standing amongst authentic brothers and sisters. Firmly on Christ's doctrines, firmly on a joyful, optimistic outlook on life. Don't be pessimistic. Don't complain. Uh, love, joy, and peace are not just optional things. These are fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are mandated fruit for every believer. So stand firmly on the doctrines of Christ. Have a joyful, optimistic... Christians should be the happiest people on the face of the planet. Even in the midst of persecution. All other homes will fall, and as verse 27 states, great will be the fall of such homes. This fall could be a fall into great sin, apostasy, or just complete depression as a person's life come crashing down hard around them. You've seen people like that. They built their entire uh, hope and dream into their marriage, and the spouse dies. And they're, they're depressed for years because that's what they built their house on. And when the fall occurs, the man will have no one to blame but himself. The scripture passage today makes a distinction between a foolish man and a wise man. Yes, indeed, God says that there's two different types of men. Which kind of person are you? Are you foolish or wise this morning? Are you foolish or are you wise? The foolish man, probably because it was easier, less costly, and easier to do, and he saw everyone else doing it, builds his entire life on sand. And for a while, he thinks he got away with it. Ha ha ha, you worked harder to build your house. It was easy for me. We got the same kind of house. It cost me less. I'm smarter. Right? The wise man does a cost analysis and determines that although building on rock is harder and costlier, it is nevertheless worth the extra effort. Both men build great-looking homes, and during sunny weather, the fool looks smarter. Why? Because both men have great homes, but it costs the fool less to build his. And so it is in our time today with unbelievers and heretics. They actually look smarter sometimes. The cost is less. Why break up the remarriage? Too costly. As the wise man quietly endures the mockery around him, one day a terrible storm comes. To put it in the words of Jesus, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against both homes. And it is only after the storm passes that all, all are able to see the true wisdom of the wise man. His house, because it was built upon costly rock, though harder to build, has withstood the storm. 
the fool's home. There's nothing left. It looks worse than Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy. Horrible. Gone. Great was the fall of it. Listen carefully. Although rock, the rock, is Christ, I want you to know that Jesus is far more specific in today's scripture text. Jesus tells us that the wise man is the man who hears and obeys his commands. In fact, hermeneutically, I wouldn't even have a problem with someone saying that the rock in this passage is a reference to someone who believes and obeys Christ. It's the belief and obedience to Christ that's the rock here. That's, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Although I stand by saying that the rock is Christ. You're building on Christ. But Christ is being very specific here. Conversely, the fool is the man who hears but does not obey Christ. The focal point of this passage, and I don't want you to leave here without this. The focal point of this passage is obedience to Jesus. Obedience. Which is one of the reasons why I earlier conversation about female pastors, sometimes I feel like telling them, why don't you just obey Christ? Because people are going to sit there, if you're a female pastor, which the Bible prohibits, by the way, if you're a female pastor and you're preaching from the Bible, there are going to be people who know their Bible or even their New Testaments well and say, I find it highly ironic that you're telling me to obey a book that prohibits you from doing what you're doing right now, which is pastoring, a woman pastoring. But there are a host of things that go into this right here. There is no question that obedience to Christ is going to be costly, but I am telling you right now that when storms come, you are going to be so very thankful that you built your house on solid rock. So please do not deceive yourself. Female pastors, don't deceive yourselves. You're not going to stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For something God clearly said, it is a shame for you to do. Please do not simply hear the sermon, but go on living life disobeying Christ. You will pay dearly for it in the long run. I wish to close on that note. So often when I read today's passage in the past, I thought about its application to this present life. I often, that's the way I often read it. I remember the first time I ever heard this passage preached. I've read it many times. First time I ever heard it preached was at uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle here in New York City. Tony Evans was the guest pastor. And he preached this message. Great message. I loved it. But he preached it on the storms of this life. It was inspirational. Inspirational, especially if you're going through difficult times in life. It spoke to me and galvanized me, and it did for a lot of people. I remember the message. I'm a pastor, so I tend to remember messages. And, uh, and that was a very strong message. And oftentimes I think people preach this passage in light of temporary earthly troubles being the storms. I remember Tony Evans to this day, he said this, he said, he said life only has three um, phases. You're, you're, you're either about to go into a storm, you're in a storm, or you just came out of a storm. I still remember that. And I said, you know what, how true is that? How true is that? That's, that's often the case. I hate to say that to you, but it's true. If, you're, if you just came out of a storm and you're in the calm seas of life, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but storms are coming. They're coming. Believer or unbeliever, storms are coming. But although one could preach a sermon in that perspective, and I think it's powerful, and I think you could do so, 
Much like, I, I want to go a different route. Much like the passage in the Old Testament, which declares that righteousness exalts a nation. So I thought that a man who obeys the words of Christ will not just merely withstand the storms of this present life. So Tony Evans is right. Yet while preparing for this sermon, I came across a better, more ultimate, if you will, application for this morning's passage. I believe that the ultimate storm is God's judgment. God's judgment. In other words, the man who, because of his genuine faith in the gospel, actually spends his entire life obeying the commands of Christ, even little commands. Like, for example, when God says, uh, rejoice evermore, you intentionally, even though you feel grouchy, you put on a smile, you're going to be happy, right? Because you know God is in charge and he's for you, not against you, all that good stuff. Giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Things don't go your way, but you still give God thanks. You choose to obey in all those arenas, right? When you look at those things, right? A man who spends his entire life obeying the commands of Christ will stand on the day of judgment. His faith will be proven authentic through his works and the man will receive a great reward from the Lord. I can't go out, I cannot skirt around this. The Lord says this, I am Alpha and Omega and I am coming quickly and I will reward each man according to what? His deeds. His deeds. I think of the Apostle Paul, who says that, take heed as, as to how each man builds gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay. Because what? Not talking about a temporary fire on this earth, but he says in the ultimate day of judgment, the fire will test. And then will each man's work stand or burn? And that's where I think Jesus is going with this. I think he's going with the ultimate sense, the ultimate storm of whether or not you're going to stand or fall. And I think ultimately it's his judgment. So the man who heard the word and did not obey will fall hard on the day of wrath, on the day of God's almighty judgment. Friends, let me remind you that in verse 24, when Jesus says these words of mine, He's referring immediately to everything within the Sermon of the Mount. This is very important to remember. Including divorce and remarriage. And so, so if, we, if, if we're going to exegetically work, when Jesus says in verse 24, these words of mine, what, what is Jesus speaking about? Some people say, well, He's talking about the Gospel. That's fine. But hermeneutically, he is talking about everything he just said in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Within context, that's it. These words of mine. And then we can extrapolate it to the Gospel. And then the New Testament. And then I would say the Old Testament. I had so many professors in, in seminary say, you know, they hate red-letter Bibles. And I like red-letter Bibles because the red letters show that those are the words of what? Of Christ. But the reason why they don't like it, they say, is, is because it, it creates a false dichotomy in the minds of people that, that some are the words of Christ and the others are not. So you will really pay attention, obey the red ones, and the other ones are like, sort of like optional. Now, where, whereas the entire Bible is red-letter. Paul, you know, Peter, Jesus, it's all from God. And I agree with that. 
I agree. So we can say these words of mine refers to the whole corpus of Scripture. But it's also the gospel. Whoever believes and obeys the gospel will be saved and withstand God's wrath. Now what is the gospel? I want you to listen carefully. Number one, there is a holy righteous God who loves you, but he must send all sinners to hell. We're all sinners. Every single one of us, we're all sinners. And we deserve hell from Almighty God for our sins. This is righteous judgment from God for humanity's sins. But thanks be to God, the good news is that God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for our sins after living a sinless life. And on that cross, while He was dying for your sins, He absorbed the full wrath of God in His own flesh. And He paid for your sins on the cross. And three days later, He historically resurrected from the grave so that if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, your God, and your Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. You believe it and you obey it. Oh, that's weird, Pastor Steve. How do you obey the gospel? John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the parallel there? The, the parallel is so strong that many New Testament translations, they just put believes in both sentences. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life. But in the Greek, the second parallel line there is obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see what John is saying here? To believe in Christ is to obey Christ. And that's the point of today's message. Build your house on that foundation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I